right, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. And I want to talk to you today about David. As you saw in the video here, the Bible is filled with biographies that don't hold back in telling us what Bible characters, even Bible heroes, really did. Good, bad, and ugly. And today, we're going to talk about David. I'm calling it David, Just One Look. How many of you can remember that song? Just one look. That's all it took. I'm not going to sing. It was Linda Ronstadt. How many don't remember that song at all? Well, God bless you. You have missed, you missed a great song. Right? But we're going to talk today about not the good things David did, though there were many, but, but his fall. Because we're going to learn from the bad boys and mean girls of the Bible. So let me just put the verses up here. This is 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it together. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, right there is when he ought to have backed off. When he heard the name or the word wife. Amen? But he didn't. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and uh uh-oh, he slept with her. Everybody say, big mistake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that, Lord, you'll give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, that we would grow in the fullness of the knowledge of Christ, that we would grow into his very stature. Lord, in a perverted, twisted And sick culture, help us to walk in wisdom. Can you breathe a prayer now, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart. I receive your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at your neighbor and tell him, perk up. And listen, you're going to need this by tomorrow morning. (laughs) Now, this, this series we've called Infamous. Bad boys and mean girls of the Bible. A lot of people don't, don't realize that the Bible is painfully honest about the successes and the failures of not just Bible characters, but Bible heroes. And here we're going to learn about one, King David. So far in our series, uh, we've looked at Cain, the rebel with a lost cause. Delilah, the deadly seductress. Samson, the he-man with the she-weakness, and Jezebel, the original black magic woman. Today, I want to talk to you about David. Just one look. That's all it took. We should keep in mind that not all the Bible characters are that we've been looking at are totally bad. Some were totally bad. Jezebel, she was totally bad. But some are bad or flawed for a season. And that's David. David was bad for a season. It's inexplicable bad. Where he went and what he did has baffled Bible commentators and 
Bible studiers as long as the Bible has existed. It's very difficult to understand in one way how David went where he did, but he did. We're talking about God's anointed here. David was good for most of his life. For most of his incredibly blessed life, he, he, he was a poet, a songwriter, a musician, a warrior, a king, a father, a husband. He was the anointed of God. He was the one of whom God said, there is a man after my own heart, David. It is out of David's lineage that our Lord Jesus Christ came. Believe it or not, when you look at David, you see a man going from victory to victory, faith to faith. He was precocious in his faith, bringing the giant Goliath down when he was 16, 17 years old, while the rest of Israel's army quivered and quaked in the tents. David went up with a sling and a stone and said, you're coming down. Amazing, prodigious, unbelievable. He shocked the whole nation. He became a legend in his own time. David. But there's a dark splotch on his resume. When his life is summed up in 1 Kings 15, verse 5, it reads, For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. That except carries a lot of weight. Because that's the one area where he fell. Now, Uriah the Hittite was the husband of Bathsheba, whose murder David heinously orchestrated in order to cover up his adultery with Bathsheba. A quick sweep of David's fall into sin goes something like this. On staying home one day when the rest of his army went out to battle, David spotted the beautiful Bathsheba from the rooftop of his own house. He called for her, knowing that she was married, committed adultery with her, after which a messenger came from Bathsheba with the news that no adulterer ever wants to hear, baby, I'm pregnant. David immediately launched into a cover-up campaign that began with calling Uriah, her husband, off the battlefield, brought him into his own quarters, and got him drunk. Hey, have a little bit of wine. Tell me how the battle's going. Well, have another wine. Well, have another one. And while you're at it, have another one. And when Uriah was quite besotted, David sent him off to his own house, thinking this. If he goes home, I can always say in a day where there is no DNA that the baby was Uriah's and not mine. But Uriah wouldn't play the game, even though he was tipsy. He still didn't play the game. He said, you want me to go home and be with my wife while the rest of my compadres, my comrades are on the battlefield, fighting, dying, not me. And the Bible says, Uriah being a man of high honor, slept on the porch of the king. Strike one, David. The very next night, David tried the same thing. Hey, Uriah, come, let's have another talk. And by the way, while you're at it, here's a wine and have another wine. And Uriah, don't you really want to go home and be with your wife? 
Uriah wouldn't play the game. Uriah once again slept at the king's porch that night. Strike two, David. Now, where David went next can only be described by the power of evil that comes in once the door to sin has been opened. Once you open a door, you have no idea what's coming in behind it. When you go off into sin, you go longer than you thought you would, you stay longer than you thought you should, and you go further than you ever thought you would. David had opened a door and he had no idea that behind it, the enemy of his soul rushed in. And what we see God's anointed doing right here is is a mind blower. This is the sweet psalmist of Israel, the one that gave us the 23rd Psalm, Psalms 91, Psalms 1, all these beautiful, anointed, Holy Ghost-inspired poems. Bible teacher Arthur Pink writes, with cold-blooded deliberation, David penned a note to the commander of his army commanding him to station his faithful soldier in the place where he would be the most exposed to the assaults of the foe and then leave him to his cruel fate. This man of honor, Uriah, who had refused to go home to his wife, who had been so loyal to the the army of God that he slept on the porch of David's house to honor the army, to honor the king. This king penned a note sent to the leader, the general of his army, Joab, put him on the front lines where the action is, and when he's on the front lines, pull back. It's hard to even say this, but to make it even more wicked, the man David appointed to carry the letter to Joab was Uriah himself. Strike three, David. You are out. Uriah, the loyal soldier, goes up to Joab with a letter, the contents of which he has no idea about, hands it to him. It's the letter of his own doom, the letter of his own murder. When David learned of Uriah's death, his response is blood-curdlingly callous because it happened. Uriah's on the front lines. Joab said, the rest of you, come back here. The man was left alone. He was taken out. When Joab sends a message back, it's done. This is what David said. Well, the sword devours one as well as another. Don't let it bother you. No big deal, Joab. Don't let it bug your conscience. Hey, he would have died one day anyway. It's okay. Now, when it may have looked like David got away with murder and with adultery, he didn't. Because the Bible says the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. See, so often we think that we might do something that we get away with. We get away with nothing because the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, going to and fro throughout the whole earth, beholding the evil and the good. And God saw this, and it displeased God. And when something in the Bible says it displeased God, it's really stronger than that. It was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That means payday someday is coming. 
From this point forward, David's life would never be the same. For an entire year, get this, for an entire year, he lived unrepentant. Sin always dulls the conscience and always snuffs out our relationship with God. And so his conscience had been seared. His conscience had been dulled by what he did. So he was unrepentant for a whole year. He he didn't say, God, forgive me. You know, I I don't know how the image of Uriah didn't come in front of his face. Maybe it did, but we know that he didn't repent. He didn't take it to God. It took Nathan the prophet confronting him to bring him to his senses and to a place of deep, gut-wrenching repentance, which is vividly recorded for us in Psalms 51. But get this, church, though forgiven, trouble would visit his household for the rest of his life. He would suffer an attempted mutiny at the hands of his own son, Absalom, which is absolutely terrible. It was half the kingdom followed his son. The whole kingdom was divided right down the middle. And God had said that that would happen to his household. Incest, rape, murder, treachery, and heartache were a part of his household to the day that he died. Now, the, the, the reason, you got to go, why would God put that in the Bible? Because that's terrible. I, I don't want to know that about David. He's my hero. He killed the giant, man, with a sling and a stone. And he had four stones left. And I found out later, Goliath had four brothers. So, but, but why put this in there? Well, because the Bible says that all of these stories were put in the Word of God so that we would learn from them and not make the same mistakes. See, see, God lets other people make the mistakes for us so that we hopefully will learn from it and not do the same thing. So, so with that in mind, let's learn from David. How did this black season of failure and treachery and adultery and murder happen in the life of the man after God's own heart? How'd that happen? Let me share a few key truths from this story. First thing I see, David stepped out of his God-given purpose. The Bible says David stayed home in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. So everybody else, all the other kings, everybody, all of his peers would go off to war in the springtime. They would go fight their battles because the weather was good. The cold winter was done. So they would go and they would fight their battles and get their land and and, and the chips fell however they did. But David, when all of his peers went off to war, David stayed home. David stepped out of his call. He stepped out of his gracing. He stepped out of his anointing. He stepped out of his purpose. Did you know that he was 50 years old when this happened? Do I dare say it? Perfect age for a midlife crisis. He was 50. Kingdom of Israel was at its zenith. Some people think it was during Solomon's time. I don't because it was already in decline then. It was, but when this happened to David, when David made this move, Israel was at its zenith. There wasn't a mightier man on earth, not one, than David. He had been fully established in who he was as king and who he was as God's anointed. He was fully ensconced in what God had given him to do. And and in his mind, I think he might have been thinking something like, you know what, I'm unassailable, I'm untouchable, I'm invincible. Are you ready? Here's what people think that are like David who end up tumbling. Here's what they think. I am above the normal rules. 
So all these other guys may go off to war, but you know what? I'm, I'm on top of the heap. There's nobody higher than me, nobody mightier than me. So I, I think I'll just kick back, take it easy, smell the flowers, let somebody else carry the load for once. I don't need to go out to battle. But oh, how he needed to be on that battlefield. David was a king, and it was spring, the time when kings go to battle. He should have been on the battlefield with his troops, but he wasn't. David remained at Jerusalem. Above all other things, David was an anointed warrior. His fame began with the killing of the giant Goliath, and he was known for, quote, going out and coming in from the field of battle, always victorious. He always won. You never read of David losing. He was famous as a winner's winner. If David had remained in his purpose, he would never have seen Bathsheba that fateful day. The opportunity to fall would not have presented itself. He wouldn't have been there if he'd stayed in his calling. Now, folks, let me tell you something. There is something to be said about staying in the place God has called you to. Man, there's something. There is a place that is safe. There is a place that is secure. There is a place where there is joy. There is a place where there is peace. There is a place where you win your battles and it's in the epicenter of the will of God. Wherever that will is, there is a place. Everybody say that with me. There is a place. And it's not necessarily a geographical place. Although it usually plays out geographically, you ought to be where God wants you to be. But, but really, it's a condition. The condition is the place called God's will. Has God called you to teach? Has he called you to witness? Has he called you to pray? Has he called you to serve? Has he called you to preach? That's your place. Listen, when, devil go, when the devil goes to take somebody down, one of the first things he does is he gets them out of their place. He whistles from another direction and says, over here. And, and you get out of your place. You wander from your post. And you're being set up. Let me ask you a question. Are you in the calling and purpose of God for your life today? Are you? Do you know how many people are not in church today? Not in this church, but I'm talking about everywhere, all over America, who are not in church today because they've gotten out of their place. And, and, and there's various reasons for that. Some of them, you know, they got hurt in a local church. That happens all the time. So they say, you know what? I'm never going to open myself up for that again. And so I'm not going to be a participator. I'm going to be a spectator, maybe even from my living room watching TV, perhaps. But I'm never going to be involved in another local church. And, and they get out of the battle that God has called them to, and they stay home. They stay in Jerusalem, and you run into them and say, how's it going? Oh, it's doing, going great. Well, where are you going to church? Well, I'm not really going anywhere, but I go to church in my living room. And I say, no, you don't. You don't go to church in your living room. Well, yeah, I do. I fellowship with Joel Osteen on TV. I watch somebody on TV. I said, that's not church. They can't lay hands on you when you're sick. They can't preach your wedding when you're getting married or your funeral when you're dead. They can't touch you. They, they don't know you. You need to be in a place where people have skin on them.
So somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Bill, how are you doing? And they know your name. Has God called you to teach, witness, pray, serve, preach, and instead you're sitting in Jerusalem? You know, you, you, you can stay home in here and go to church, but you're at home here. You're still unplugged. And I would love to see you get replugged. I've been hurt a million times in local churches. If I had let hurts keep me out of doing what I do right now, I would have been out of the game a long time ago. But I realized you can't let back there keep you from here, from now. You've got to stay with it. He said, but Pastor Jeff, I'm really bleeding. Can I, can I sound callous? Get over it. Forgive and move on. They back there aren't worth your anointing now. Let me tell you something. You're safer in the place of battle in God's will than in the arms of a lazy boy sitting at home watching ESPN. Just ask David if the battlefield in God's will isn't a better place, safer place, stronger place, happier place than staying in Jerusalem. Now, the second thing we learn from David's fall is, I got to say it, the danger of a wandering eye. It says, and from the roof of the king's house, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Don't, don't you wait? The devil should have just made her ugly. But she was beautiful. And he saw. Now, when we read the words, he saw a woman, we're taken back to Samson, where we met him in Judges 16, verse 1. You remember that? Where it says, he saw Delilah. All of Samson's troubles began with those two words. He saw. He saw. He saw a woman in Timnah. He saw a harlot in Gaza. He saw Delilah. He saw, he saw, he saw. He got in trouble, in trouble, in trouble. When it says that Samson and David saw, that word is so strong in the Hebrew language in which it was written. The word used doesn't simply mean that they saw a woman like, like you would see a bird or see a painting. That's not what it means. In the original, here, here's what it really means. She was in his eyes. Literally, it reads, woman in eyes. She was in his eyes. Stuck where she couldn't get out. The idea is that both Samson and David lingered in their gaze. They didn't look and turn away. They looked and didn't turn away. They saw until the desire to take what they saw had captured their heart. And that's the way it works. Folks, we live in a depraved culture. Can I tell you the truth today about something? We live in a sick twisted, depraved culture that has totally caved in to unbelievable, stunning immorality. And everywhere we look, here's what we encounter, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's what's everywhere. 
It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. You turn on your computer and you go to a site, you go to a news site or something, and something pops up right in front of you that you didn't even go for. And there it is, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's there. It's inescapable. If we ever needed the Holy Ghost to keep us strong, it's now. The Holy Ghost. Because James, James tells us how this works, how it happened with David, how it happened with Samson. He said, everybody is tempted in their own, by their own cravings. Notice he didn't say by the devil. Flip Wilson had it wrong. Devil didn't make him do it. Ready? Everyone is tempted by their own cravings. They are lured away and enticed by them. And once those cravings conceive, they give birth to a baby. And the baby is sin. And when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. So the cravings are the temptation itself, but the conceiving and the giving birth is, is the action. And that's what David did. Woman in eyes, can't get her out, can't turn away. And so finally he gave in. Folks, the struggle with the lust of the eyes never ends. You don't get over it one day and live the rest of your life without it. You've got to deal with it every single day. Every day, you've got to give your eyeballs to God. You've got to give what you look at to God. I'm not just talking to the men. I mean the women as well. You've got to give your eyes to God. I, I was talking to a guy once. He was 80 years old. 80 years old. And, and he had a retreat center. And this great big swimming pool out there in this retreat center. And I noticed that he had all the curtains drawn, 80 years old. And I said, hey, don't you need to kind of keep watching on the kids? And he said, well, other people do that. He said, I'm not going to open up those curtains and look at all those girls out there in the swimming pool. I said, but, but you're 80. <laughs> I did. I said, encourage me a little bit here. And he said, just because there's snow on the rooftop doesn't mean there's not a fire in the house. So, let's be honest, everybody. Never before has the American culture been more geared to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And I don't know how anybody wins over it unless you first get up in the morning and cast your gaze on the Word of God. That's the only way. Get filled with the Word of God. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But that's the only way out. I'm going to read to you an incredible promise. I never saw this verse until this week. Listen to this. Isaiah the prophet gave us an incredible promise to the person who shuts their eyes to lust. He said, he who walks with God and whose words are good and honest and who shuts his eyes from looking at what is sinful, he will have a place on high. Everybody say a high place. He will have a place on high, his safe place. Say with me, a safe place. So already we've got the promise of a high place and a safe place. Watch this. The safe place will be like a rock that cannot be taken over. He'll be given food and will have water for sure. And then the best of all, Isaiah continues, your eyes, the eyes that you have turned away from lust, will see the king in his beauty 
They will see a land that is far away. That's talking about heaven. So if you turn your eyes from this and turn them to God, it's like Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. So what a promise. What a promise. A high place, a safe place, a place of provision, a place of of beholding Jesus in his beauty. David should have torn himself away, grabbed his armor, and fled to the battlefield crying, Joab, come help me. But he didn't. Believe me, many would be the times he wished he had. Now, a third lesson from David's fall is this. You can't hide your sin. Your sin will find you out. Now, folks, you know, a lot of churches won't even talk about sin anymore. I cannot not talk about sin. You know why? Because we sin. And sin will destroy you. I can't imagine being a pastor or being a church where you don't talk about sin. But I've seen major church pastors on TV say, well, we don't talk about sin. That's like going to a doctor and the doctor's saying, we don't talk about cancer. It's just not in our vocabulary. If we see it, we don't talk about it. I'm out of that doctor's office. Because I want somebody who can diagnose me and cure me. Numbers 32 verse 23 says, you may be sure your sins will find you out. David's first reaction was to cover up what he had done. His motivation was to save face. Remember, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Pride was working on David. There is no way I'm going to let this out of the bag. I'm the king, uh, the greatest king on the face of the earth. There is no way this is getting out about me. No matter what I've got to do, even if it's murder, I'm going to cover it up. He was only concerned about his own reputation. As long as that's the way we think, we're never going to grow. He couldn't hide what he had done from the eyes of God. Nobody knew at first, but God knew. God saw it. The Bible says those who hide their sins won't succeed, but those who confess and give them up will receive mercy. But even before his sins became public, they were already eating away like corrosive acid in the depths of his soul. David vividly describes his misery in Psalms 32. Listen to this. There was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was. But my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. All day and all night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day. In Psalms 38, he continues, I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all day long. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Listen to these adjectives. Here's what sin will do for you. Troubled, bowed down, mourning, feeble, broken, groaning, turmoil within, miserable, weak. Here's the thing about temptation. Temptation always comes with a promise. It's got a promise attached to it. The devil acts like God. He's just a liar. With every temptation, it says, if you will do this, you will experience fulfillment, peace, fun, an answer, a solution, love. 
And it turns out the promise is never delivered. When the enemy tempts you and, and he sticks a promise on the end of that temptation, it's always a lie. You can count on it. Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you're not going to die. They ate and they died. Can I give you three little things free? Three nevers about sin. This is free. Okay? Here's the first never. Sin is never worth it. It's never worth it. Never. There's never an exception. Sin is never worth it. Second, never. It never delivers what it promises. Never. Third, it is never a solution to your problem. Never. Now, the enemy will give you a temptation and tell you it's a solution, but it's never a solution. So we see that David stepped out of his purpose, didn't rein in a wandering eye, and tried unsuccessfully to hide his sin. But David's fall teaches us one last thing, and, and, and this is going to end this message on a high and a happy note. How many of you are ready for a high and a happy note? Because <clears throat> I can see some of you going, oh, man, I'm just, I might should have stayed home today. This is kind of... Oh, I preach the word of God. I just let the chips fall. This is the word of God. This is the Bible. Now watch. Here's the high and the happy note. And this makes me happy to say it. Our God is a merciful and forgiving God. Oh, yeah. After a full year of inner torment and broken relationship with God, David sincerely repented, and he tells us about it in Psalms 32. He's talking right to God. Listen to what he says. God, I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord. Here's the good part. And you forgave me. You forgave me. And it gets better. All my guilt is gone. God removed the guilt of his sin as far as the east is from the west. He threw his sins in the deepest part of the ocean, never to be recovered. The guilt that had done all those things to him, he recorded for us in Psalms 32 and 38. All of it vanished when he gave the weight Listen, nothing will weigh you down like guilt. Guilt is a hard taskmaster. I think of those slaves in the ships. They would have 30, 40 of them down there all pulling an oar. And over them was the taskmaster whipping them as they rowed. And I always think that's guilt. Pull. And you're down in a slave ship. You're a slave to sin, a slave to guilt, a slave to regret. You have no joy. You have no life. You have no fun. There is something eating away at you. You try to smoke it away, shoot it away, snort it away, drink it away, but you can't get rid of it because it's guilt. There is only one thing that tells guilt where to go, and that's the blood of the lamb shed for us. That's it. 